When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the podcast you're about to hear, we talk about moral disengagement. Lewis and I discussed this, and with Lewis's permission, I decided it would be appropriate for me to record at the beginning of this podcast a statement with regards to the use of electroshock. I and many other behavior analysts believe that not only is electroshock an inhumane practice that should never have been started or used, but that it should be disavowed and should not be applied. Likewise, I and many other behavior analysts firmly believe that any application of behavior analysis that is similar to conversion therapy or any therapy like that is extremely inappropriate and should be completely disavowed by the behavior analysis community. I believe that behavior analysis as a community needs to accept responsibility for the inhumane and inappropriate practices that we have been party to, perpetrated, and so forth. Um, And that a part of that process of changing and improving our field is taking ownership of these mistakes. It is my firm belief that the only way forward for us as a field is to re-examine our morals and our moral disengagement and to use the information that we cover in today's podcast to change our approaches, to be aware of the things that result in us disengaging and to do our best to create systems and approaches that counteract the probability of moral disengagement. This podcast is going to be a hard listen because this podcast is going to review some ideas and and information that you yourself or somebody that you know might have applied to morally disengage. I encourage you and urge you to please listen wholeheartedly and to try to apply this information to yourself, to your practice, and to the people that you serve to ensure that we do not morally disengage. Thank you very much for listening, and please share this information with others. I'm your host, Brian Middleton, and today we have Lewis Stay joining us to speak on moral disengagement theory. Welcome, Lewis. Hi. It's a real pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, come onto the podcast and speak on this topic, uh, especially since it's in line with one of the things that I find really important, which is learning about theories outside of behaviorism and seeing how we can apply them towards improving the field. Um, Lewis, could you please introduce yourself a little bit, tell the audience a little bit about yourself? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on here. I it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I my name's Lewis. I am um, a, a former RBT. I was an RBT for almost a year and left the field because um, I was not morally comfortable with what was happening at the particular clinic I was working at. Um, and then it just led me to dive into like a deeper side of um, like the autistic community and their perspectives of ABA and the ideas about ABA and criticisms of ABA and that kind of thing. Um, and it just gave me a lot more well-rounded um, idea of ABA. And it's been really nice to talk with you and um, kind of figure out what is good ABA and what is, you know, problematic ABA. Yeah. Uh, I, I can say that um, in the conversations that we've had both in person, over text, and over the phone, that um, you ask really good questions, like really good questions. So super thank you for that, because um, along with it being a great way for me to stretch my uh, ABA muscles, um, it also has helped me to stretch my ethics muscles and trying to understand and improve um, well, my, my overall understanding and consider applications and, and how we can do better. So that's, that's a core drive for me. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. No worries. Um, so from the uh, moral disengagement theory, um, could you give us a, a, a quick introduction to that idea first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so moral disengagement theory was proposed by Albert Bandura. Uh, he is a incredible psychologist. He is a major influential um, psychologist in social psychology, personality psychology, and cognitive psychology. Uh, he did a great job at, um, he invented social learning theory. Um, he did the Bobo doll experiment. He's very well known. Um, and he came up with this theory more recently called moral disengagement theory. And moral disengagement theory are basically, these are the ways that people justify doing immoral actions to themselves. And here are like cognitive defense mechanisms that they use to try to distance themselves from things that they might not be morally comfortable with, but not aware that they're not morally comfortable with it. And that's, that's really good for considering an application to the science like behaviorism, because there are situations definitely where, where there is um, ethical gray areas. Um, a case that comes into mind for me is um, a situation where I was working with a client who uh, was physically aggressing um, to the point of fracturing um, skulls and, and things like that. Wow. And that that's definitely seems like a very black and white situation, but at the same time, there were ethically dubious things that were happening as well. And mm -hmm. so it seemed like it was pretty straightforward. I can't go into too much detail because uh, privacy of the individuals involved. And if I mm -hmm. give too much information, that's going to potentially compromise that. Um, but the long and short of it, if it is that without that lens of, of asking those questions and considering the things, things would have gotten much worse. Um, mm -hmm. 
I can say for me, myself, and I in this situation that due to my grounding in act, relational frame theory, that sort of stuff, that that helped me to break out of the cycle and to propose new ideas that allowed for a big shift. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, as of the last time I heard about that case, because I'm no longer working with that individual and ethically, I cannot know more about it than than when I was working with this individual, but as of the last time I heard, um, not only had the rate of aggression dropped to maybe once a month, but also the intensity of the aggression dropped as well. So the last time that there was a situation of aggression, um, the individual in question, um, punched a wall and, and then, um, tried to smack somebody and then de-escalated very quickly after that. Um, whereas before high frequency of aggression, like two or three times per day, um, Mm -hmm. and duration was 30, 40 minutes minimum. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, but then there comes the challenge that we have with, um, when it comes morally speaking, of, of us having this idea as behaviorists of, well, we're here to help. We're trying to help this individual. Yeah. And because we're trying to help, that must mean that what we're doing is okay. Yes. Yeah. Does that sound about right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that's usually when moral disengagement theory is used most often is in situations where people are genuinely thinking they're helping other people. And that's their intention, where their intention is good, but the actions they're taking are bad. And how does how does that happen? Where's that disconnect? How do you get from I want to help this person to wow, I'm in a really morally dubious situation. And it's it happens so fast, and you don't even think about it until you're already there. So big part of this conversation, uh, and I, I gather based off the conversation we had before doing this podcast was that you wanted to share this. So that way it could be a way to help shape the the field of behaviorism towards the more healthy approach with behaviorism, as opposed to the unfortunately dominant species of behaviorism, which is very unhealthy. And as you and I both agree, quite unethical. So imagine for a moment, because this is a very appropriate imagination that there's um, a student in behavior analysis, maybe they're working as RBT, they're hoping to get their BCABA or BCBA, or Mm -hmm. maybe they're just an RBT and uh, just as an inaccurate sorry, qualifier, maybe they are an RBT who is happy working as an RBT, but they want to be do better. Mm-hmm. So how can moral disengagement theory help them to do better, to be better? Yeah, so moral disengagement theory allows us to examine our own arguments, especially when we get to situations where we start going, wait, am I in the right here? Um And even if it's like called into question by another person, it's really good to be able to examine that under that framework, because then you can see, am I using these tactics in order to like justify my arguments? And if I am, why am I doing that? Like, what, where is that stemming from? What is my problem with this morally? What is happening? Um, And so it allows a much broader um, perspective 
to engage with the situation that you're dealing with and the situations you deal with every day in everyday life. And if you find yourself using an argument in moral disengagement, it's just a really good like immediate flag to say, okay, what's happening? Why, why am I using this? What is this coming from? That kind of thing. So basically this is logical fallacies. Like these are, these are logical fallacies that frequently will occur relating to moral disengagement. Is that a pretty good way of summarizing it? Yes, it, it's very similar to logical fallacies. There is a distinction just because um, the things proposed in the theory aren't logical fallacies per se. Like not okay. all of them would be classified as a logical fallacy, but they are all um, things that are seen commonly in situations where immoral behavior is happening. And so it's like things to look out for essentially. But there are a few that are definitely logical fallacies that are definitely that like I'm using a logical fallacy to justify what I'm doing. Okay. So then, um, is it okay if I come up with a, a hypothetical and, and we walk through the process of what the moral disengagement might look like? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what I'm thinking is, uh, let's say there's a situation where um, BCBA creates a program relating to um, feeding and food, because mm -hmm. that tends to be, that tends to be very rough area to address in behaviorism um, mm -hmm. with the clients we're working with and can be very socially significant, especially when it comes into questions of nutrition and the individual's be ability to survive and then the effects of malnutrition because malnutrition can lead to all sorts of later health conditions, problems affecting quality of life, um, yeah. so on and so forth. So BCBA creates a feeding program. The feeding program, though, as is written, is quite aversive. Mm. Okay. Um, RBT is in process of trying to utilize the program as written. Perhaps there's a dynamic between BCBA and RBT that's not the healthiest. Perhaps mm -hmm. it's the RBT is just scared to speak up because they don't feel qualified. There could be so many different variations on this. What? Yeah what would be one of the justifications or um, for lack of better term, I guess the logical fallacy like thing that, that would go through that individual's mind? Yeah. So um, there's probably several happening um, okay. and some that are happening for the RBT and some that are happening for the BCBA. Um, for the BCBA specifically, the thing that I've seen most often with ABA um, and the thing that I experienced when I was working in ABA is that um, uh, something that happens a lot is called euphemistic labeling. And it's when you use language to describe um, less than moral conduct in a more palatable way. And so you try to shift the language into something that like sounds better, is easier to take, is more justifiable. And so in this case, it's likely that the BCBA is not describing their um, program necessarily is like using aversives. They're like likely not describing it as, you know, an immoral thing. They're likely thinking of it as differential reinforcement or, um, you know, any, any number of like BCBA, ABA, like larger jargon, anything that you would, you would use to substitute um, like, like if you're specifically trying to use the language to get away from what you're talking about, then that's a huge red flag. And I see this um, when I talk to BCBA sometimes about problems in like 
that I see in their programs um, is that they'll oftentimes try to make it a language argument of, oh, you're using the language wrong instead of actually addressing what I'm talking about, which is the subject of their plan. And that's something that I've seen a lot with specifically BCBAs. Okay. So me as a behavior analyst, BCBA, um, I've, I, can, I can tell you I've gone through this myself where I, I like to use, to use a um, act like metaphor. I go through what I call my, my, my three thoughts, um, which anybody who's a fan of Terry Pratchett celebrate. This is something that he, he introduced to me. Um, my first thought usually is the, well, yeah, but, and then my second thought typically that occurs is a defense of the first thought. And then it's usually my third thought that is the one that really goes to the heart of it. Mm. Um, so this is one that happened to me years and years and years ago, even before I became a, a BCBA when I was a teacher. Um, Going to alter the conditions a little bit because it wasn't exactly this, but long and short of it, something occurred in my classroom and my student effectively said, stop it, that hurts. That, that's not exactly what they said, but basically that's what they said. My first mm. thought was, who is he to tell me what to do? This is my classroom. Mm. My second thought was, that little jerk, he's just, trying to, he's just trying to control the situation. And then my third thought was, hold on a second. He just said that hurts. I need mm -hmm. to stop. Yeah. Right? So, um it sounds like euphemistic labeling might be the, the kind of that first second thought phase. And then what we're trying to do is get to that third thought of being like, wait, what is actually going on here? Yeah. That's a great metaphor for it. That, that ties in beautifully because um, that that's essentially what this disengagement is, is you disengage this with that first thought. You say, this is it. This is the first thought. I'm disengaging now. I'm taking myself out of the situation. And so, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what it is. It's moving past that and like examining those thoughts. Okay. So behavior analysts being behavior analytic on our own behaviors. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Apply it to yourself. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you said there were several things going on. So we just talked about euphemistic labeling. Um, mm -hmm. What might be another thing that is going on with um, either the BCBA or the RBT? Yeah, um, I will stick with the BCBA just because I have one specific to the RBT um, okay. that I could think of. Um, the second one that came to mind with the BCBA, and this sounds really harsh, so just keep an open mind about it, but um, dehumanization. And that's just viewing the person that is the you know other in the situation as like subhuman, et cetera, et cetera. And BCBAs, I doubt ever think of it in these terms. I'm, I'm sure no BCBA, at least none that are reputable, would ever think, oh, the person I'm working with is like less than in any way. And I think that that's um, where a lot of like miscommunication happens there is that um, when they hear things like this, it, it feels like, oh, I don't do that. that, that there's no way. Yeah. But um, in the situation, what I could see is that the BCBA sees the child as a target, as in like, I want him to hit these goals or I want her to hit these goals, um, instead of thinking of them as human in the situation. 
and like specific to the context. So of course they think of the person as human, but in the context, they may just be thinking, I want them to hit these goals and I want them to hit them in this, these ways. And so in that way, they're just, I want to follow this plan. And at that point, you've kind of taken the individual out. Well, and that reminds me of, and forgive me for going a little bit off of, but this relates um, a TikTok video that you did talking about a client you're working with, with a shoe tying. Yes. And, and with that particular client, you were following the program as written and you were doing everything that you were told to do. And then you took a step back and saw that there was, there was some frustration and potentially some hum- humiliation yes. on the part of the individual. And so you gave the client some space and said, do it when you're ready mm-hmm. and, and basically gave them that space. And then they did it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, I'd seen them do the behavior before. I knew that they could do it. It was, you know, a really simple behavior for them. They had it easily within their repertoire. And, you know, I immediately started going into the prompt hierarchy because that's what I was supposed to do as an RBT is like, if you're not doing the behavior, you follow the prompt hierarchy. Pretty, you know, straightforward stuff. Um, But yeah, this individual who was nonverbal, so couldn't adequately communicate some of his feelings and thoughts, um, was really struggling with it and pretty much, you know, not with any real like situational reason. And that's when I realized like, I'm watching him, the BCBA is watching him because she was supervising me at the time. Mm-hmm. And like, he has a lot of pressure on him right now to get this right. And he has a lot of pressure and he knows how to do this. And for whatever reason, he can't get himself to do it. And so I just put myself in his shoes and said, you know, I think in this situation, I would feel uncomfortable and possibly humiliated because Mm -hmm. I'm not able to do something that like, I know I can do. And I, you know, I've been in situations like that before. So that's exactly what I did as I just stepped away and said, you know what, take your time. There's no rush to the next activity. You just do it when you're ready. And like you said, perfectly, he, he had no problems once he was given the adequate space. So would you say that that fits perfectly into a situation where dehumanization could have been occurring and then by stepping back, you humanized? Yes. I think that's a a great example of that where, um, yeah, at at first I was thinking of him as a goal or a target of, you know, he needs to get this behavior done and like just trying to push towards that instead of actually like considering him in the situation and what his experience might be. Okay, so now I'm going to be devil's advocate because I know I'm going to hear people say this argument. This is, this is not my argument, but this is, we, we have to understand the, the thoughts that are going through our heads in these sorts yes. of situations. And this is a Absolutely. part of the process. So dehumanization should also not be done to us. Yes. But the, but the thought that's occurring is, well, I'm not thinking about that person as the goal. I'm thinking about the behavior specifically. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm making the argument wrong, but this is what what my counter to that would be, is in the moment you're you're fusing or connecting the two and you're forgetting the person over the goal. Yes. Does that about hit it? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think that's a great summation of what I was getting at with the specific situation you proposed to me of like, what might the BCBA be? be utilizing in the situation and and it sounds like like that is a good example but i'm feeling i'm believing based off of my trying to understand these ideas 
that this is not just that specific situation, but it could be anything ranging from applying speech goals to learning how to do a, a math assignment to, um, and, and, I, and I understand that it's a very common term in behavior analysis, which is why I'm using it, but compliance training, um, yeah. which I, <laughs> I understand the definition of compliance, but it always uh, has niggled me a little bit wrong to call it compliance training when it's more like cooperation training. Like we're learning yes. to cooperate with each other, but a part of cooperation training, AKA compliance training is that we also need to be aware of the communication that the individual working with is exhibiting, mm -hmm. whether it be, whether they be vocal or verbal, right. Vocal or not yeah. vocal, there, there's still communication that's there. And so we need to be cooperative. We need to be pro-social, not just, Oh, well, the program is they have to follow my directions. And yeah. that's one of the things I try to always do with my RBTs is like, yes, the program is this, but if the kid's like, hey, can I do this instead? If it's in line with what we're trying to go for, why not honor that communication, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and that that, that always is... That, that bugs me a little bit. And sometimes I have to do a quite a bit of training with RBTs to get them out of that mindset of like, yeah. no, it's, it's, it's what the program says. And I'm like, but, but the kid, <laughs> <laughs> the baby yeah. human, the person. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, in RBT training, they stress so hard that you do everything your BCBA tells you, like you need to just follow the program as it's written. It is not your job to change it in any way or form. And like, great advice for what the job is, but there definitely is more to that. And it, like a good BCBA like yourself would, you know, Oh, please make don't sure call me a good BCBA. Cause I, then, then otherwise my ego is going to be super big and I'm going to assume <laughs> that I'm a good BCBA. I'm not a good BCBA. I'm a BCBA who's trying to be good. <laughs> yes, that's fair. And I, how about this? I hold you in high regard as a BCBA. Like I think that you. you do a good job from my own perspective, but of course my perspective is a limited one and you know, you, there's always room to grow. Is that some summarize it better? <laughs> that, that does. I, I don't. I don't want this. This. This big old ego of mine getting any bigger than it already is. So, <laughs> okay. So, um, we've talked about dehumanization, and you said um, euphemistic labeling. Yes. Um, going back to our feeding program, what what might be another mechanism that's in play? Yeah. So um, the other ones. There's one more that I'll talk about with the BCBA, and then I have one for the RBT. The okay. other ones um, are more applicable to, I feel like, the defense of ABA, but okay. um, that's a different, that's a completely different thing. So um, specific to this situation, uh, another thing that the BCBA might be doing is um, moral justification. And it just means, it, it's essentially just ends justify the means. So like what I'm doing now justifies the end goal. And so in this situation, the BCBA not is probably not consciously doing this at all. And I've never met anyone who has ever thought in ends justify the means. I've never heard anyone say that in real life. So like, I don't think we typically think in that way. But I have had, um, I've had heard people say stuff or stuff like that, but I'm glad ooh. you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've been lucky enough not to encounter that, especially within the field of ABA. Um, but one of the things that could happen is that going back to the other one of um, 
dehumanization, seeing the individual's behaviors like the target and, you know, forgetting the individual for the situation itself, um, you may equally think, well, you know, we're avoiding malnutrition. We're trying our very hardest to make sure that, you know, he's well fed, that he, he or she gets um, the nutrition that they need, that they're able to uh, function, that they're able to get their needs met, um, that they're able to recognize when they have hunger, um, since that's a huge issue. Um, and so the BCBA might be thinking these things and then justifying the program that they're doing of, oh, well, this helps them get there. This will do it. Um, so when you think of the target goals, if you're just simply um, using the target goals to justify the plan that you're doing, then the plan that you're doing might be worth taking a look at at the very least. Okay. And then um, the mechanism that you were thinking about for the RBT, which one was that? Yeah, so the one for the RBT is just a very, very classic logical fallacy. Um, but in this case, it would just be displace displacement of responsibility. So the RBT is likely thinking in the situation, I'm following orders, I'm doing my job, I'm just following, you know, what my BCBA has given me. And this is something that I feel like happens a lot with RBTs. Um, and like we were discussing before, where like this displacement of responsibility of I'm just following orders is kind of where a lot of RBT moral disengagement happens just because they're not as involved with like making the plans. They're mostly involved with, um, you know, following the plans. And so they're more subject to that particular line of thinking. Although I would say that um, moral, moral displacement of responsibility, uh, sorry, displacement of responsibility occurs a lot with BCBAs too, because um, referring to say research that's been done being like, mm. well, the research shows that this particular approach is effective. So therefore it's okay for me to take this approach because the researcher has done this and it's been replicated and proven to be effective. Yeah. Basically displacing that responsibility and putting it on, well, the research is effective. So therefore that must mean that this is the best approach rather than asking the question of, okay, so yes. research is effective but what's the outcome for the individual, like the overall outcome, not just the outcome of the behavior in question, but the full person as a person, how are they affected mm -hmm. with this? And then that leads to another thought or process that is simultaneously uncomfortable and um, requires more effort, which is, well, if this, if this might be effective based off the research, is there possibly something that's more effective that's yeah. also taking into account the individual? Yes. Yeah. Well, and the, the, just the very slight segue that I'll go with this is that um, I actually had pulled up a research article that I thought was very um, relevant and it's by Callahan et al. 2010, but it essentially talks about the ideological warfare that happens with ABA, and um, it examines ABA versus TEACH, but in the, the experiment that they did, they weren't actually comparing the outcomes of either. Mm -hmm. They were removing the labels from both, um, so it was ambiguous, am ambiguous which of the two um, was being referenced in the study, um, so that when... Um, responders would respond whether they thought the method would be an effective method, um, whether they think it would be a good thing for their kid, things like that. They found that the two were seen as equally like effective. The problem is, is that um, the group that had those labels um, overwhelmingly chose ABA. 
despite the fact that the when the two were compared just as pure ideologically mm-hmm. um, without any of the labels, they were seen as possibly equally effective therapies, though obviously teach doesn't have nearly as much evidence. Okay. So um, I'll be honest, I, because I'm, my memory is not so great. And, and also I didn't get a whole lot of chance. Uh, I didn't look this up beforehand. I have a, a Wikipedia article listed up in front of me with uh, descriptions of each of these. Um, I'm seeing that there's a few, more than a few other things that we're looking at. So not just uh, euthanistic labeling, moral justification, uh, displacement of responsibility and dehumanization. Um, is it okay if we go through the rest of the list and, and possibly discuss how each of those might look? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'll let you lead on that one since. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have it written out in the list, so this won't be too hard to, to do. Um, okay. The next one after moral justification and euphemistic labeling um, is advantageous comparison. Um, and this is more in line, I've seen this more in line with the de- defense of ABA. Okay. Um, but it's essentially when you compare uh, one less than moral action to a more extreme less than moral action. And I think where this shows up a lot is when um, ABA compares itself to past ABA, where ABA says, we're not as bad as, you know, the classic Louvaugh method. We're not like, we actually listen to the children. We don't do this um, as a justification to like justify things that have been called into question as to say, oh, well, we're not as immoral as, you know, we were in the past. And so what we are doing now is, you know, way more moral, a totally different context. You know, we don't even have to think of it as the same. This is obviously, you know, better, even if what might be happening isn't as good as it could be. Yeah, I, I hear this frequently when talking, when these discussions are coming up and, and you hear things like, well, at least we're not doing things like conversion therapy. Yes. And yeah. that, that, makes, that makes me cringe a little bit because in some ways when it comes to logical fallacies, um, if you were to compare this to a logical fallacy, that's a straw man. Yes. That's a very, the very big straw man argument because it's like, well, like, at least we're not, well, hold on a second, but we're not talking about that. Like, Hey, we're progressing forward. And by the way, if you are using any form of conversion therapy in your practice, then, then that's bad period. But <laughs> like, but, but that's not what we're talking about here. Like that, that's kind of a dodging the, 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 the issue that we're trying to discuss, which is what is actually happening. And is mm-hmm. it something that is trauma-informed and is treating the individual with dignity. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And are there going to be situations where it's going to be more great? Yes, there are. There always is. When we're dealing with human services and we're dealing with situations where it it can be life and death on the line, um, that's always going to happen, which is one of the reasons why it's important that we have we are equipped with things like this because then if we're equipped with it, then we can stop ourselves when we're going down the wrong path. Um, mm-hmm. And even when we're going down the path, we're asking ourselves these questions because if we're not, if, 
if I'm equipped with the, oh, I'm a good BCBA, good BCBAs are, and because I'm trying to be a good BCBA, then therefore I must be a good BCBA, then the, that stops me from asking myself the question, am I doing something wrong? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in the case of this, it's a very like high stakes situation where if you are doing something wrong, you could be really harming an individual that you're trying really hard to like help and improve their lives and that you've spent so much time and energy. And if you're a parent money to do, or you're, you're really trying to, you know, help this person. And so that also like ties in like sunk cost fallacy where, you know, you've tried so hard to do the thing right. If you aren't doing it right, then you may have completely like destroyed whatever goals you had in the process when, you know, the whole time you just wanted to help. Well, and this goes to an, an interesting thing that I, um, I was aware of, but I have been recently reminded of because the BACB put a, um, they did a podcast on the updated ethics code. And mm-hmm. one of the things that was mentioned that has been in place has always been in place since the BACB is, uh, has been organized um, is self-reporting for ethics violations. Mm. And it, it was something that was covered in my classes, but it wasn't something that really had occurred to me. But then I was like, wait, self Oh, this is something we need to be working on is being able to check ourselves. And if we do violate something ethically, then we need to be self-reporting. Yeah. So that way we can try to address, redress and resolve. Like, yes, that's a big part of this. And how often I'm, I, I, I'm pretty sure the BACB can't release information like this because of the um, potential for disclosing information. That's, that's private. We have to comply by the laws of the land and and HIPAA compliance is important. But at the same time, I am curious to see what the rate for self-report is because um, the contingencies when speaking behavioristically, um, there's not a whole lot of reinforcement that comes from reporting when you've made a mistake. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this isn't, this isn't just in behaviorism. There's, uh, I, rats, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting the paper that I read years and years back, but, um, it had to do with looking at, um, behavior in an emergency room and reporting of mistakes and Mm. basically relation in relation to um, the mortality rate of, of um, patients who come through. And Mm. I forget what the exact conclusion was. Um, Oh, I remember where I read this. Um, It was in the book, change anything. Um, Mm. So the authors uh, there's, there's like seven authors of that book. Um, but the authors went into and discussed how something was changed in the approach and the ER and mm-hmm. it resulted in the mortality rate of uh, ER victims dropping drastically. Wow. So I need to, I need to reread that book and see if I can find that information. But that goes into this, this issue here of like, okay, if I'm doing the advantageous comparison, then that means I'm not, I'm disabling that ability to catch myself and to change things. And that results in potentially very harmful outcomes. And yes. that, that makes it me by very definition, not be a good BCBA. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and it's really hard to do and i've i've talked to a lot of um you know former bcbas and such now that have like come out of the field feeling very very like remorseful and really upset that you know they didn't catch it sooner and and that they were doing things that they now regret um so like it, it's never a fun situation and i can see why you would want to you know disengage with that because who wouldn't <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. Okay. Um, any other thoughts on moral, uh, sorry, advantageous comparison or, or did you want to move to the next one? We can move to the next one. Okay. Um, so what's next on the list? Um, after advantageous comparison and displacement of responsibility is diffusion of responsibility. Um, and this is one I also see a lot in the defense of ABA, um, a really common, almost um, made satirical remark by ABA is not all ABA. Oh. And <laughs> essentially the argument that we're not like other ABA clinics or we're not like the bad clinics or we're not like, or even, you know, history, we're not like the bad, like history. Um, and so you're diffusing responsibility by blaming the group instead of the individual. So you're saying my clinic's good, even if there are other bad clinics out there. And I see that a lot. And that, it makes a lot of sense to have that response because when you're feeling attacked, you want to, um, reduce the, the, the pain that comes from that. Um, and to be fair, I have done this in the past. Um, something that I've found to be more effective um, in my approach, and, and, I, and I'm on record for saying this multiple times now, and I will continue to go on record to say this, is my response now when I hear about that is, I am very sorry, and I am responsible. Mm -hmm. Me. I am responsible. And here's the reason why I'm responsible because there's, there's the, but wait, you, you didn't actually do that, Brian. And my, my response to that is, so I'm a professional. This is my field. Mm -hmm. When others in ABA do it, they're reflecting on my field. I have a responsibility. You know what? Mm -hmm. I didn't do it that myself. You're right. Like I'm not the one who's using shock therapy. Yeah. But I am also a professional who is responsible ethically towards speaking up and saying that's not okay. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I am, I am fully responsible. So therefore I take responsibility. I own myself and I own what the field is doing. And until that is a thing of the past, I will continue to take responsibility. And even when it is a thing of the past, I am responsible because mm -hmm. the only way to truly move forward and to make sure that thing is a thing of the past is to be a aware of it, B mm -hmm. opposed to it and C actively engaged in preventing it. Yes. Yeah. And it's also, um, no, like not speaking from a personal perspective, but considering the perspectives of the other in the situation in situations like this, like it is incredibly validating to hear someone say, I'm sorry. And, you know, I do take responsibility for what's happened to you. Like, that's not okay. And I, I don't think it's okay. And I'm working to, you know, fight from this ever happening again. And yeah, too often that gets lost in just the defensiveness of, oh, well, that's, that's not us. 
Well, and not because this is a direct comparison, because it's not a direct comparison. Okay. Yeah. Um, just just to clarify here, because they're not the same thing, but it's similar to somebody when somebody is is when a, a person of color is talking about institutional racism and how they're being affected. And mm-hmm. then another individual goes, yeah, but I've never owned a slave. Yeah. It's like, how insensitive is that? The how, like this, this person over here is saying this hurts. Ow. Yeah. And then the other person's like, well, yeah, but I didn't break your arm. Yeah. Just incredible invalidation. Like, and, and instead what really needs to happen is just like, I'm sorry that hurts. What can I do to help? Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Okay, so diffusion of responsibility. Um, uh, the next one is probably this. This actually ties in like great with what we were just talking about, okay. and it is also a very like you know dangerous justification. Is disregarding disregarding or misrepresenting injurious consequences, okay. and so you're basically minimizing the harm that has been caused, or um, avoiding it altogether, avoiding you know taking responsibility for that harm, and so um, you know it's just like we've been talking about where um, it, it's really easy to distance yourself from situations that have caused harm, and even minimizing them and saying, oh, well, you know, that wasn't really that bad. Or like, maybe that person had that specific experience, but that definitely doesn't happen like here or like to like my clinic or things like that. They, um, it it ends up minimizing the individual, but never, obviously never intentionally. I, I, again, with all of these, it's like no one goes out of their way unless they're a really bad person to do these things. This is just something that happens because we all end up in moral situations. We all end up, you know, asking ourselves really hard questions. So one of the things that, that comes to mind when talking about disregarding or misrepresenting injurious consequences And maybe this falls under a different one. Maybe, I don't know if it falls under a different one of these or not, but a thing that I commonly see in relation to pro-ABA individuals, um, very pro, like, I don't want to say radical because that sounds sounds unfair, but I guess radically pro-ABA in relation to people who are, again, radically anti-ABA is uh, a criticism that I frequently see as well. Are you officially diagnosed as autistic? Yes. And this argument that, well, because you don't have an official autistic autism diagnosis, that therefore your argument is invalidated. Yes. Um, And that one really frustrates me because um, I had access to some pretty interesting resources that were unique to me mm-hmm. when I was able to get my corrected diagnosis. Cause I was incorrectly diagnosed as nonverbal learning disorder, which is a very common misdiagnosis for male um, autistics. Mm-hmm. And because I had that unique circumstances, I was able to easily get my diagnosis. But the reality is, is that regardless of what system you're in, it's still difficult. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, and so invalidating people for by claiming that because they're self-diagnosed, then therefore they're not allowed to speak or have an opinion on something. In my opinion, it, I think, and I could be wrong here, but I think that falls under disregarding or, or misrepresenting injurious consequences because it's like, well, you don't have a, value, a valid argument because you don't actually have this diagnosis. Mm. Do you think that fits or... Yeah, I think, I think it definitely fits. Um, I don't think it's typically applied that way, but I do think it fits um, where I've definitely seen self-diagnosed people talk about, you know, other people's experiences within the autistic community. And usually they're very informed on those perspectives because they're in a lot of those communities mm-hmm. automatically like disregarded as if they don't have relevant information and as, as if because they didn't experience it, there's, or because they don't experience it, like they say, like they're claiming to essentially that they are like credible sources when, yeah, that's absolutely correct. That it's, it's when you think about it critically, it becomes very obvious how absurd that idea is. Yeah. Well, and then another thing that I see that frequently happens for disregarding or misrepresenting is saying, well, you know, the behavior in question was reduced, so therefore it must have been effective. Yes. Yeah. Or um, similarly, um, kind of also tied in with moral justification is, um, well, you know, without this, like, how would they have stopped physically harming themselves um, or physically harming others? Like, how would they have stayed safe if we didn't engage in this, if we didn't use aversives, if we didn't, you know, um, you know, an experience of mine that was an ethical situation I walked away from really uneasy and and ultimately walked away altogether from the field was um, a functional analysis where the use of aversives was being uh utilized in order to stop these behaviors to stop um you know harming others to stop harming themselves and i i don't even think they would have necessarily considered the full impact of them just using aversives in the situation because they didn't use it in general programming but it was one of the situations where i saw the effects of that where they were um minimizing the harm that was being done Mm-hmm. And the clear effects on the individuals based off of the behaviors the individuals were, was exhibiting, the very concerning behaviors that were, you know, trauma focused and looked, were, was presenting as traumatic. Yeah. And they were minimizing this in order to say, like, this is worth it. This is all like, this is, it's not that bad. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's really difficult for, for me in, in this, because I'm, I'm, I'm living in two worlds. I'm living in, in a world of, of one. I'm, um, my neurotype is autistic. Uh, I have mm-hmm. an ASD diagnosis. Um, I've experienced something that was ABA like, although ABA was not officially formed, uh, as a, as a field when mm-hmm. I received it. Um, and my experience was pretty good, generally speaking, although I definitely had traumatic experiences as a kid. So on one hand, I'm living in this world of I'm, I'm an autistic um, with that summation of my experiences. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, I'm also a behavior analyst. I'm a board certified behavior analyst. I have a master's of education. I've worked as a special ed teacher. Um, and so I have me, myself and I, I have to play this balancing act of 
trying to weigh these things. And, and where I've come to in my exploration of my ethics is the realization that regardless of my experiences as an autistic, mm-hmm. I, I live and work in a place of authority. And yes. because I live and work in a place of authority, I have power over somebody else. And that mm. power can severely and detrimentally harm this individual. So yes. I am obligated. It is not an optional thing. This is a requirement that I have to hold myself to, not just others hold me to, to question my approach and to consistently and persistently look for ways to, to take better approaches. Yes. Yeah. Like, there's, there, it's, it's, it, there's no shadowy line there. It is a very firm and solid line. And it's a hard place mm-hmm. to live. Um, I will say that it, there are times when it's exhausting. But I'd rather live there than live in the world of being defensive and justifying. Because mm-hmm. I have lived in that world, not necessarily as a behavior analyst in other places in my life I've lived in this in this place um and thankfully my exposure to act acceptance commitment therapy has helped me quite a bit with this because it's, there's been a lot of, of of personal evolution coming in into that but awesome. um the, the the reality is is that like comparing past experience and where I was then compared to now, I would rather live in a place of values mm. and driven by my values. And one of those values being that I need to put the, the um, safety and autonomy, the dignity and so many other adjectives mm. <laughs> that, that need to be placed there as a priority over convenience for me. Yes. I, I totally agree with that. Okay, so um, the list that we just went over was um, moral justification, euphemistic labeling, adventitious com- comparison, displacement of responsibility, diffusion of responsibility, disregard or misrepresenting injurious consequences, and dehumanization. Yep. That is the list. <laughs> no, my memory is not that good, folks. I was scrolling. <laughs> um, so really solid things there. I think we could go further in and try to operationally define each of these more. But at the same time, I feel like they're, they're fairly clear as mm-hmm. mechanisms um, that, are, that are happening. Um, defensive mechanisms even because the individual is mm-hmm. feeling like either, well, when, it, when they're being questioned, they're the defensive mechanisms, but otherwise in, well, maybe they're even defensive mechanisms for when you're in the morally ambiguous situation. I don't know. Correct me if yeah. I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> no, that sounds right. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, then what are the things that, what are the things that come before this, because we're looking at these, uh, I'm tr- we're trying to look at these from a behavior analytic perspective, but I also see that in the research that antecedents are something that are discussed. Yeah. Um, 
a lot of it is group dynamic. That's okay. the the biggest fantasy in it. Um, is how the group operates and how the individuals fit within those groups. Okay. Uh, because people, it, there's so much group theory and so much group psychology out there that there's a number of ways that, to explain how it happens. But um, eventually, you know, you end up in some kind of microcosm of um, everyone's shared experience at your clinic going into your practice. And so everyone's role in that is going to depend on how they interact with that situation. And so depending on, you know, how much the their clinic utilizes this could be a big indication of how the individuals utilize this. Um, how BCBAs utilize it might be how an RBT um, would simu- similarly utilize it. Um, people will go off of roles. Um, at least that's thought of for this particular theory of how that works. And so... Um, yeah, depending on how the group functions and how the individuals inside those groups functions will um, kind of result in how these play out and what is the most prevalent and how prevalent things are within the clinic. Okay. And um, just noting the summary article I'm reading, it also talks about there's some individual differences, like based off some of the research that some individuals are more inclined to disengage compared to others, but that they're not really sure what the factor is there. Mm -hmm. Um, But that falls. So from a behavior analytic perspective, this falls thoroughly into what behavior and analytic research has shown, which is that we have to look at the individual. (laughs) Yes. um, But then we also look at the interplay of the person and, and the social situation in relation to that. Um, so then I see in this, this article, it talks about consequences uh, of this. So it looks like we have a classic three-term contingency here, ABC. We were just talking about the behaviors at the very <laughs> beginning, and we talk about the antecedents. So let's look at the consequences. What are the consequences of um, these behaviors? Yeah, Um so the most obvious and biggest consequence of this is unethical decisions. It results in a bad decision being made about a moral situation. And depending on the authority of the individuals involved will depend on how massive the, and also the, the risk involved will um, show how massive the consequences of that are going to be. Um, so, you know, in an unethical situation, say an individual has a really high support need, they're not able to communicate very well, and the individuals around them are making a lot of their own decisions. You're, if you make an unethical decision in that circumstance, you have some huge risks there where you may be violating the individual's autonomy, you may be violating their dignity, you may be, um, you know, potentially traumatizing them depending on what's happening. Um, and obviously not on unethical behaviors are equal. There's definitely better and worse ones. And so it, it depends on the behavior and it depends on, you know, the circumstances of the individual and as to how severe these unethical decisions are. Well, and then that leads to like, if, if you're in the, one of those situations and, and you make a decision, then there's deceptive behavior. There's, there's trying to hide what you've yes. done or, um, lessening the impact, maybe misrepresenting and how you report it, mm. or mm-hmm. um, even 
and and this is a fun one because I, I'm, I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but memory is not perfect, even for people with identic memory, um, mm-hmm. AKA photographic memory. It's, that's not the actual term. Um, yes. it, like the research is, is proven that, um, that it's memory is imperfect. And a lot of it has to do with the verbal behavior related to what we're saying to ourselves about those memories. So it's really, Mm -hmm. it it really is what we take from our experiences, less so what we actually experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that falls a little bit into relational frame theory research, but that's, that's Mm -hmm. a different rabbit hole. So that deceptive behavior then is also a consequence. Um, Yes. I, I also noticed in this, in this summary article, it talks about military conduct which we're not really, uh, no, <laughs> that's not me. We're not, a, we're not a military force. So therefore that, that no. doesn't quite apply. Um, no. <laughs> but, but I'm also seeing moral. Uh, so I'm seeing aggression is another possible, um, mm-hmm. side effect of this. Have you seen aggression? Have you experienced or seen aggression in RBTs or behavior analysts? Um, that's a complicated question, mostly because I haven't seen any physical aggression, anything that would be, um, you know, outwardly aggressive where it would be, um, you know, something that I could report to a, say, like a work agency of some kind. Um, I have seen more relational aggression and that's typical of a lot of workplaces. I think that definitely is prevalent in the field of ABA. I can't speak to how prevalent, but I, I definitely think it's there. And my own experience of it was that I saw a lot of relational aggression, especially among RBTs for um, trying to get ahead in the company trying to, um, monitor group behavior and like keep us a certain like social code of like what's okay and what's not okay. Um, just like some classic workplace politics type stuff I've seen like that type of relational aggression. The gossiping, the, yes, the the gossiping, uh, the clicks, the, yes. And then in my like own experience of my supervisors with that, when I was challenging, something that they're morally disengaging from a lot of the times I would see them start um, ignoring when others would gossip about me or um, coming up with like a whole list of reasons why like my conduct at work wasn't okay out of nowhere with absolutely no warning things like this where the defensiveness causes this level of like no like get away from me you're wrong you're you're wrong I'm right this is like we're not having this discussion essentially. And, you know, coming from an RBT to a BCBA standpoint, there's definitely a power dynamic there where the BCBA definitely has the power in the situation. And I I think that's another thing that's sometimes is forgotten with, you know, how clinics operate where, you know, everyone is generally seen as, you know, competent, capable as a whole group. Um, So it, it can be hard to see how a BCBA might influence an RBT in a meeting especially towards their own goals. Yeah. Well, and you talking about the social dynamics, that's reminding me of when I was working as a teacher. And yes. um, perhaps it has to do with my neurotype. Perhaps it, perhaps it has to do with my <laughs> learning history, but I'm, I'm, I'm less inclined towards uh, mincing words. Um, and when I saw something was going, was wrong as a teacher, 
I, I spoke up about it and maybe I wasn't the most diplomatic about it at times, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I would frequently receive um, punishment in the form of uh, getting some talking to's uh, mm-hmm. to, in, in attempts to do disciplinary action. Uh, I say attempts because um, with my learning history, I'm, I'm aware of, how people go about doing this sort of thing. And so Mm -hmm. I was able to sidestep or undermine their efforts um, because I'm autistic. I'm not an idiot. Yes. (laughs) This is so relatable. (laughs) This is is, is exactly how I feel about my own situation. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so I was able to do some things and and basically uh, mitigate those. But at the same time, it was because I was calling out, that I was getting those consequences and that that is a, a type of aggression. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in behavior analysis, we actually are, are pretty decent at, at delineating and defining aggression because we have physical aggression. We have a verbal aggression. We have posturing, which is basically threatening to aggress, um, yes. which in and of itself is a type of aggression. Um, yeah. And so like, yeah, aggression occurs and, that that is a potential consequence um and then of course i'm saying the last one is uh or possibly last one unless there's one that's not listed here um moral disengagement and routine uh routinely performing self-serving actions um i think the biggest thing this is speaking to is just um the repetitiveness and the habit of it mm-hmm. um, where if someone's morally disengaging, they're likely doing it often. And the more a group does it, the more the entire group is going to do it as well. And so it can quickly build on itself. Um, at least that, w- that would be my interpretation of it. Um, I'm sure this also applies to, um, you know, individual circumstances where someone wants to benefit and they use justification, you know, multiple times in order to, like continue that deception or continue that like towards their goals. But in a a, ABA context, I I would consider this more just um, if you're in the habit of it, you're likely going to be doing it more and it's something to, you know, be aware of. Okay. Well, and I, I can also see the moral disengagement through routine performing being this this occurring through like well we have to make sure the company's doors are open thinking about the billables the, yes. the things like things like that that we have to consider um and the the reality is is that the majority of behavior analytic services are being executed done provided for um people with l- some sort of developmental delay yes based off of the medical model um mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm trying to highlight with, with um, what I'm doing here with this podcast is, is helping people see that behavior analysis does not equal autism services. Yes. That it should not equal autism services. But also the flip side of that is if behavior analysis does equal autism services in this circumstance, then we still have to ask these questions. And, and when it doesn't, we should still be asking these questions regarding whoever or whatever we're serving, because yes, there is ABA services being provided for um, adults 
yes adults with dementia for example um and I, I have several acquaintances and friends who are using behavior analysis towards uh, sports medicine, sports uh, fitness applications in that regard. Um, I know that there's behavior analysts who are in animal training. Um, there are behavior analysts who are in organizational behavior management. And in all of these situations, it sounds like we need to be aware of this problem of moral disengagement and figuring out how to counter that mm-hmm. so then that leads to my next question is what are some things that that we can do to counter these things yeah um i think one of the things to be highly aware of is what you're saying so observing your own behavior so having that introspection to be able to analyze your behavior and like watch specific behaviors because a vocalization would be a behavior in this case um and noticing if you're performing the behavior of using this line of reasoning so um certain talking points like we've already said like not all aba or ab in the past or um i'm just doing what the bcba says like those types of things that are just very common expressions that you know slip into just like general conversation about ABA are just things to be aware of. Am I, when I say these things, what's happening there? What, what is happening with me? What am I referring to? Why am I using this? Um, And do I have anything to look at in my own life? Um, I think that's a big one. Uh, Another big one I would say is um, being very aware of sunk cost fallacy, because I think that that's one of the biggest problems with, the defensiveness of ABA um, is because of the amount of sunk costs there is for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And so everyone involved is going, are going to be more likely to be in defense of it because they've spent so much time, money, resources, um, you know, years of school, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, um, you know, families spend so much a year on it, things like that, where, because everyone has these high stakes, they're going to be more likely to be very defensive if it's challenged. Because what what have I been doing this whole time if, you know, what I've been doing isn't good or isn't towards what my goals were? Um, and so I feel like just being aware of where sunk cost fallacy happens in your own life and like what your attachments are and what like particular things you've had to go through to get to where you are. And being aware of where that might creep into your own like thoughts about, like say your field in this particular case, but this could really apply to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I th- feel like that's a really good way of catching moral disengagement as well as just um, making sure that you're not doing it to defend what you've done to get where you are. Yeah. Well, and. I'm just trying to think of this from the perspective of uh, an RBT or a BCBA who's working in, in a company where it's, it's the, the things are strained because yep. I've been there, not necessarily in ABA companies, but I've been there as, as an employee in organizations mm-hmm. I've worked for in the past. And there needs to be some compassion that's put out towards those of you who are in those situations because mm-hmm. you're in a you're in a tough spot and you're now becoming aware of moral disengagement 
and or maybe you were already aware of it and just didn't have the terms for it or the, the a way of describing it. Mm-hmm. And you want to do what's right. You want to do what's best for the people that you're serving and what's right for, frankly, everybody. Because mm-hmm. when we're aware of moral disengagement and we're countering it, then that really is best for everybody in question. Um, yes. So what are your options? What are the things that you can do? Well, my recommendation is document. Mm. Document, document, document. If you have a conversation with, with a, a supervisor, uh, send a follow-up email. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, if, if there's a concern that you have, write it down. Have a notebook and write, write it down and keep a consistent notes and date it. Not so much yeah. because we're trying to catch people because the reality is, is that Unfortunately, that might be an attitude that some people have, but it's more like we're trying to catch this moral disengagement and try to counter it. But if the person involved is thoroughly sunk into the sunk cost fallacy, Mm -hmm. if they're thoroughly invested in it, then we also have to think about the individuals that we're serving that are vulnerable. Yes. And that should always be the priority. And so there needs to be documentation. There needs to be something that can and should be done because unless we speak up, unless we push back, it's not going to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And the BACB requires that you have documentation to report an ethical violation. They don't do investigations themselves. They, you know, you have to provide the documentation for them to assess an ethical situation. So heaven forbid an ethical situation ever arises you want to make sure you have what you need at that time because if you haven't been recording that then you're just kind of out of luck as far as the BACB goes you can still report but it's not going to go as far yeah exactly um always understanding that the emphasis here is bettering the field and Mm-hmm. For, for those of you out here there who are maybe listening to this and thinking, I don't know that this is the right place for me, that's okay too. Like, yes. um, it, it's heartbreaking to me because I love this field. I, yeah. I, love, I love what behaviorism can do. And I love the, the amazing impact in a positive way that it can have. But if you don't see a way forward or you feel like, you're burnt out Mm -hmm. it's okay to say i need to be done um Mm -hmm. but please document and report when there's unethical things that are happening because otherwise they're going to continue happening and i foresee I, i hope to foresee a future where the major the the problems that behavior analysis is consistently having are not common, but instead exceptions. But even in that future that I'm really hoping for and working towards, Mm -hmm. my advice would be the same. Document, document, document. Because we have to do this. This has to be a value, something that we're constantly moving towards. The value of moral engagement, the value of prioritizing the people that we serve and acknowledging that we're coming from a position of power and authority. And Mm -hmm. so because we're coming from that position, we need to be defensive for our clients, not for ourselves, but for the ones that we're serving. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I mean, we take notes on our clients 
because we value, we recognize that that's important. So mm-hmm. equally, we should be doing the same with our staff and, and documenting what's happening. Um, is there any other actions that you can think of? And, and I'm not really thinking of any, so if you can't either, that's okay. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Um, just a moral disengagement. Uh, well, how to, how to counter moral disengagement. Like what are some things oh. that actionable things that we could do? Got it. Um, the other thing that, no problem. Um, the other thing that I thought of is holding each other accountable. Um, mm-hmm. cause a big part of it's group dynamics too. And so, uh, even if you may not necessarily be doing it, which everyone does it to some extent. So it's just something to be aware of, yeah. but even if you may not necessarily in the situation be doing it, you still might see someone else doing it. You still might hear those like phrases. You still might recognize that maybe the person is like trying to step away or justify what's happening instead of actually engaging with it. Um, and, and calling out that behavior. And if you're an RBT respectfully, you know, going to your BCA or respectfully, you know, going to the clinical director, just depending on your, the, the dynamic of your organization, um, you know, voicing your concerns in, you know, a professional way. And if you're in a good clinic, it, there should be no issues and bad clinics are kind of a whole other thing, but you should probably be out of that situation anyway. Yeah. But for a good clinic, they should listen to you. They should take your, you know, feedback into consideration and they should be either able to, um, you know, help give context for the situation or change their approach. Um, and I mean, similarly with BCBAs self-reporting, BCBAs reporting, you know, other BCBAs or BCBAs reporting RBTs or things that are really hard to do in the field because you don't want to do that to a coworker, but sometimes you end up in that hard situation. Well, I'm really grateful that we had this conversation because this is uh, linking beautifully into another social psychology um, theory that I love uh, called moral foundations theory. Uh, So I'm excited to do more reading. Um, Do you have any recommended reading? Oh, um, sorry if I put you on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) The only recommended reading I would really um, come out of this, what would be Bendura's book itself. Um, And I believe it's called Moral Disengagement in the Perception of Inhumanities. Um, Moral Disengagement's in the title, and it's by Albert Bandura. It is his book. (laughs) So um, that that would be the one that I would recommend just to give more context for the situation, um, all of that. The other thing I would always advocate for is um, listening to the autistic community, um, being in spaces that allies are allowed to be in, and you know, truly listening to those involved because we are serving that population and we need to be aware of those perspectives. Um, but th- those would be the two big ones that I would suggest. Okay. Um, is there any other things that, that you wanted to discuss or, or any thought, f- final thoughts on this topic? Uh, um, the only thing I would... Um, is this like the time for me to talk about like my own projects? Oh, please. The time is any time. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Um, just the one that I would want to plug even a little bit um, is I'm doing research. I, I'm submitting the IRB approval right now. Um, it hasn't been approved yet, but hope, 
assuming I did everything right, it should be approved. Big fingers um, crossed. <laughs> big fingers crossed. But I'll be studying qualitative, um, a qualitative study on adult autistic per- perceptions, perspectives, sorry, adult autistic perspectives on uh, their experience of ABA therapy. And it's targeting the, you know, pretty limited group of adults that we have that has had ABA and gone through ABA. And while it may be historical ABA for the most part, there's definitely a lot to be gained from it. And especially if, you know, even moral ABA for saying, hey, this was a traumatic experience, how that relates to modern day ABA. So I, I think it's going to add to the field and I'm really excited about it. And it's, you know, a passion project as much as it is a research. <laughs> so um, that'll that'll just be with my name, Lewis Stay, when it's eventually hopefully published, hopefully published. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can get some help from anyone listening about getting published, but, um, yeah, that, that's the only major project that I, I really want to plug for what I'm doing. But. Well, then my follow-up to that is, um, especially in light of you saying, if anybody wants to help, uh, but also if people want to get your thoughts, engage with you, um, have conversation, um, how can folks find you, Lewis? Yeah, um, the two main ways I would recommend finding me, um, you can email me through Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, V as in Victor, stay, S-T-A-Y, at gmail.com. Um, you can engage with me that way. Um, I also have a TikTok account. <laughs> and with, with really good content. <laughs> yeah, where I just talk a, about ABA quite a bit. and Some of it's very tongue-in-cheek and um, more of a comedic side of um, ABA, and some of it's more like what we talked about today. I actually based today off of a TikTok video that I did. Um, But my TikTok's just at therapy underscore emu. Okay. (laughs) And uh, yeah, that, I think that that beautifully covers it. Um, So I'll go ahead and wrap it up. um, If that's all right with you. Um, Folks um, remember that the OBHAVE podcast is an open source education material. That means that all or part of it can be used towards continuing education when it comes to understanding human behavior, um, educating folks, that sort of thing. Please, please, please remember to cite your sources. And um, if you can support the podcast, please consider doing that as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lewis. Um, Thank you folks for joining us as well. And OBHAVE.